Saint Bartholomew's Eve by G. A. Henty. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Read by Anna Christensen. Chapter Six: The Battle of Saint Denis. Francois de Laville and Philip had fought by the side of La Nuit in the engagements in the streets of Orleans, but had seen little of the count afterwards, his time being fully employed in completing the various arrangements to ensure the safety of the town. They had been lodged in the house of one of the Huguenot citizens, and had spent their time walking about the town or in the society of some of the younger gentlemen of their party. "'Are you both ready for service again?' the Count de La Nuit, who had sent for them to come to his lodgings, asked on the evening of the third day after the capture of Orleans. "'Quite ready,' Francois replied. "'The horses have all recovered from their fatigue, and are in condition for a fresh start. "'Are we bound for Paris, may I ask?' "'No, Francois. We are going on a recruiting tour, partly because we want more men, "'but more to encourage our people by the sight of an armed party, "'and to show the Catholics that they had best stay their hands and leave us alone for the present. "'I take a hundred men with me, including your troop and my own, which I hope largely to increase. "'Sometimes we shall keep in a body.' sometimes break up into two or three parties. Always we shall move rapidly, so as to appear where least expected, and so spread uneasiness as to where we may next appear. In the south we are, as I hear, holding our own. I shall therefore go first to Brittany, and if all is quiet, there raise another fifty men. We shall travel through Touraine and Anjou as we go, and then shall sweep round by Normandy and La Proche, and so up to Paris." So you see we shall put a good many miles of ground under our feet before we join the prince. In that way, not only shall we swell our numbers and encourage our friends, but we shall deter many of the Catholic gentry from sending their retainers to join the army of the Guises. It will be a pleasant ride, cousin, Francois said, and I hope that we shall have an opportunity of doing some good work before we reach Paris, and especially that we shall not arrive there too late to join in the coming battle. I do not think that there is much fear of that the count replied. The prince has not sufficient strength to attack Paris, and, for my part, I think that it would have been far better, when it was found that his plan of seizing the court had failed, to have drawn off at once. He can do nothing against Paris, and his presence before it will only incite the inhabitants against us and increase their animosity. It would have been better to have applied the force in reducing several strong towns where, as at Orléans, the bulk of the inhabitants are favorable to us. In this way we should weaken the enemy, strengthen ourselves, and provide places of refuge for our people in case of need. However, it is too late for such regrets. The prince is there, and we must take him what succor we can. I was pleased with you both in the fights upon the day we entered. You both behaved like brave gentlemen, and good swordsmen. I expected no less from you, Francois, but I was surprised to find your English cousin so skilled with his weapon. He is a better swordsman than I am, Francois said which is a shame to me, since he is two years my junior. Is he indeed? the count said in surprise. I had taken him to be at least your equal in years. Let me think. You are but eighteen and some months. But a month over eighteen, Francois said. And Philip has just passed sixteen. You will make a doughty warrior when you attain your full strength, Philip. I saw you put aside a thrust from an officer in the Malay, and strike him from his horse with a back-handed cut with your sword, dealt with a vigour that left nothing to be desired. I know that I am too fond of using the edge, sir, Philip said modestly. My English masters taught me to do so, 
and although my French instructors at home were always impressing upon me that, that the point was more deadly than the edge, I cannot break myself altogether from the habit. There is no need to do so, the Count said. Of late the point has come into fashion among us, and doubtless it has its advantages. But often a downright blow will fetch a man from his saddle, when you would in vain try to find with a point a joint in his armor. But you have been well taught indeed if you are a better swordsman than my cousin, whose powers I have tried at Laville, and found him to be an excellent swordsman for his age. I have had many masters, Philip said. Both my French and English teachers were good swordsmen, and it was seldom a Frenchman who had been in the wars passed through Canterbury that my uncle did not engage him to give me a few lessons. Thus, being myself very anxious to become a good swordsman, and being fond of exercises, I naturally picked up a great many tricks with a sword. You could not have spent your time better if you had an intention of coming over to take part in our troubles here. Your grandfather, de Mouly, was said to have been one of the best swordsmen in France, and you may have inherited some of his skill. I own that I felt rather uneasy at the charge of two such young cockerels, though I could not refuse when the countess, my aunt, begged me to let you ride with me. But in future I shall feel easy about you, seeing that you can both take your own part stoutly. Well, order your men to be ready and mounted in the marketplace at half-past five. The west gate will be open for us to ride forth at six. Philip had every reason to be satisfied with the conduct of his new servant. In the town, as at Laville, Pierre behaved circumspectly and quietly, assuming a grave countenance in accordance with his surroundings, keeping his arms and armor brightly polished, and waiting at table as orderly as if he had been used to nothing else in all his life. I am glad to hear it, sir, Pierre said, when Philip informed him that they would start on the following morning. I love not towns, and here, where there is not to do but polish your armor and stand behind your chair at dinner, the time goes mighty heavily. You will have no cause to grumble on that account, Pierre, I fancy, for your ride will be a long one. I do not expect we shall often have a roof over our heads. All the better, sir, so long as the ride finishes before the cold weather sets in. Fond as I am of sleeping with the stars over me, I own that when the snow is on the ground, I prefer a roof over my head. At six o'clock the party started. Only two other gentlemen rode with it, both of whom were, like the Count, from Brittany. The little group chatted gaily as they rode along. Unless they happened to encounter parties of Catholics going north to join the royal army, there was, so far as they knew, no chance of their meeting any body of the enemy on their westward ride. The town of Vendôme, Le Mans, and Laval were all strongly Catholic and devoted to the Guises. These must be skirted. Rene and Brittany must also be avoided, for all these towns were strongly garrisoned and could turn out a force far too strong for La Nuit to cope with. Upon the march, Pierre was not only an invaluable servant, but the life of the troop, he being full of fun and frolic, and making even the gravest soldiers smile at his sallies. When they halted, he was indefatigable in seeing after Philip's comforts. He cut bows of the trees best suited for the purpose of making a couch, and surprised his master and Francois by his ingenuity in turning out excellent dishes from the scantiest materials. He would steal away in the night to procure fowl and eggs from neighboring farmhouses, and although Philip's orders were that he was to pay the full price for everything he required, Philip found, when he gave an account a fortnight later of how he had spent the money he had given him, that there was no mention of any payment for these articles. When he waited Paris for this, the latter replied, I did not pay for them, sir, not in order to save you money, but for the sake of the farmers and their families. It would have been worse than cruelty to have aroused them from sleep. The loss of a fowl or two and a dozen eggs were nothing to them. If they missed them at all, they would say that a fox had been there, 
and they would think no more of it. If, on the other hand, I had waked them up in the middle of the night to pay for these trifles, they would have been scared out of their life, thinking when I knocked that some band of robbers was at the door. In their anger at being thus disturbed, they would have been capable of shooting me, and it is well nigh certain that at any rate they would have refused to sell their chickens and eggs at that time of the night. So you see, sir, I acted for the best of all parties. Two chickens out of scores was a loss not worth thinking of, while the women escaped the panic and terror that my waking them up would have caused them. When I can pay, I will assuredly do so, since that is your desire. But I am sure you will see that under such circumstances, it would be a crime to wake people from their sleep for the sake of a few sous. Philip laughed. Besides, sir, Puri went on, these people were either Huguenots or Catholics. If they were Huguenots, they would be right glad to minister to those who were fighting on their behalf. If they were Catholics, if they were Catholics, they would rob and murder us without mercy. Therefore, they may think themselves fortunate indeed to escape it at so trifling a cost from the punishment they deserve. That is all very well, Paris, but the orders are strict against plundering, and if the admiral were to catch you, you would get a sound thrashing with a stirrup leather. I have risked more than that, sir, many times in my life, and if I am caught, I will give them leave to use the strap. But you will see, Monsieur Philip, that if the war goes on, these niceties will soon become out of fashion. At present, the Huguenot lords and gentlemen have money in their pockets to pay for what they want, but after a time, money will become scarce. They will see that the armies of the king live on plunder as armies generally do, and when cash runs short, they will have to shut their eyes and let the men provide themselves as best they can. I hope the war won't last long enough for that, Paris. But at any rate, we have money in our pockets at present, and pay for what we require, though I do not pretend that it is a serious matter to take a hen out of a coop, without, as you say, alarming the whole family. However, remember my orders are that everything we want is to be paid for. I understand, sir, and you will see that the next time we reckon up accounts, every item shall be charged for, so that there will be nothing on your conscience. Philip laughed again. I shall be content if that is the case, Paris, and I hope that your conscience will be as clear as mine will be. On the 3rd of November, just a month after leaving Orléans, de la Nuit, with his troop augmented to 300, joined the Prince of Condé before Paris. During the interval, he had traversed the west of France by the route he had marked out for himself had raised fifty more men among the Huguenots of Brittany, and had been joined on the route by many gentlemen with parties of their retainers. Several bodies of Catholics had been met and dispersed. Two or three small towns where the Huguenots had been ill-treated and massacred were entered. The ringleaders and the persecutions had been hung, and the authorities had been compelled to pay a heavy fine, under threat of the whole town being committed to the flames. Everywhere he passed, La Nuit had caused proclamations to be scattered far and wide to the effect that any ill-treatment of Huguenots would be followed by his return, and by the heaviest punishment being inflicted upon all who molested them. And so, having given great encouragement to the Huguenots and scattered terror among the persecutors, having ridden great distances and astonished the people of the western provinces by his energy and activity, La Nuit joined the Prince of Condé with three hundred men. He was heartily welcomed on his arrival. He was heartily welcomed on his arrival at the Huguenot camp at Saint-Denis. Francois de Laville and Philip Fletcher had thoroughly enjoyed the expedition. They had often been in the saddle from early morning till late at night, and had felt the benefit of having each two horses, as when the party halted for a day or two, they were often sent out with half their troop to visit distant places to see friends, to bring into the camp magistrates and others who had been foremost in stirring up the people to attack the Huguenots to enter small towns, throw open prisons, and carry off the Huguenots confined there, and occasionally to hang the leaders of local massacres. 
In these cases, they were always accompanied by one or other of the older leaders in command of the party. Their spare chargers enabled them to be on horseback every day, while half the troop rested in turn. Sometimes their halts were made in small towns and villages, but more often they bivouacked in the open country, being thus, the Count considered, more watchful and less apt to be surprised. On their return from these expeditions, Pierre always had a meal prepared for them. In addition to the ration of meat and bread, chicken and eggs, he often contrived to serve up other and daintier food. His old poaching habits were not forgotten. As soon as the camp was formed, he would go out and set snares for hares, traps for birds, and lay lines in the nearest stream, while fish and game of some sort were generally added to the fare. Upon my word, the Count, who sometimes rode with them, said one evening, This varlet of yours, Master Philip, is an invaluable fellow, and Condé himself cannot be better served than you are. I have half a mind to take him away from you, and to appoint him provider in general to our camp. I warrant me, he never learned thus to provide a table honestly. He must have all the tricks of a poacher at his finger's end. I fancy when he was young he had to shift a good deal for himself, sir, Philip said. I thought so, Lenoui laughed. I marked him once or twice behind your chair at Orléans, and methought then that he looked too grave to be honest, and there was a twinkle in his eye that accorded badly with the gravity of his face and his sober attire. Well, there can be no doubt that in war a man who has a spice of the rogue in him makes the best of servants, provided he is but faithful to his master and respects his goods, if he does those of no one else. Your rogue is necessarily a man of resources, and one of that kind will on a campaign make his master comfortable where one with an over-scrupulous varlet will well-nigh starve. I had such a man when I was with Brissac in northern Italy, but one day he went out and never returned. Whether the provost marshal did me the ill service of hanging him, or whether he was shot by the peasants, I never knew, but I missed him sorely, and often went fasting to bed, when I should have had a good supper had he been with me. It is lucky for you both that you haven't to depend upon the grim-visaged varlet of Francoise, I have no doubt that the Countess thought she was doing well by my cousin when she appointed him to go with him, and I can believe that he would give his life for him. But for all that, if you had to depend upon him for your meals, you would bear badly indeed. De La Noue was much disappointed on joining the prince at finding that the latter's force had not swollen to larger dimensions. He had with him, after the arrival of the force the Count had brought from the west, but two thousand horse. Of these, a large proportion were gentlemen, attended only by a few personal retainers. A fifth only were provided with lances, and a large number had no defensive armor. Of foot soldiers he had about the same number as of horse, and of these about half were armed with arquebuses, the rest being pikemen. The force under the command of the constable de Montmorency inside the walls of Paris was known to be enormously superior in strength, and the Huguenots were unable to understand why he did not come out to give them battle. They knew, however, that Count Aremberg was on his way from the Netherlands with seventeen hundred horse sent by the Duke of Elva to the support of the Catholics, and they supposed that Montmorency was waiting for this reinforcement. On the 9th of November, news arrived that Aremberg was approaching, and D'Angelo, with 500 horse and 800 of the best-trained arquebusers, was dispatched to seize Poissy, and so prevent Aremberg entering Paris. The next morning, the constable, learning that Condé had weakened his army by this detachment, marched out from Paris. Seldom have two European armies met with a greater disparity of numbers, for while Condé had but 1,500 horse and 1,200 foot, the constable marched out with 16,000 infantry, of whom 6,000 were Swiss, and 3,000 horse. He had 18 pieces of artillery, while Condé was without a single cannon. 
As soon as his force was seen pouring out from the gates of Paris, the Huguenot trumpets blew to arms. All wore over their coats or armor a white scarf, the distinguishing badge of the Huguenots, and the horsemen were divided into three bodies. De La Noue and his following formed part of that under the personal command of Condé. "'We long to be here in time for this battle, Philip,' Francois said. "'But I think this is rather more than we have bargained for. They must be nearly ten to one against us. There is one thing. Although the Swiss are good soldiers, the rest of their infantry are for the most part Parisians, and though these gentry have proved themselves very valiant in the massacre of unarmed Huguenot men, women, and children, I have no belief in their valor when they have to meet with men with swords in their hands.' I would, however, that D'Andola, with his five hundred horse and eight hundred arquebusers, all picked men, were here with us, even if our Remberg with his seventeen hundred horse were ranged under the constable. As it is, I can hardly believe that Condé and the Admiral will really lead us against this huge mass. I should think that they can but be going to maneuver so as to fall back in good order and show a firm face to the enemy. Their footmen would be of no use to them, and as I do not think their horse are more than twice our strength, we might turn upon them when we get away from their infantry and be on the range of their cannon. As soon, however, as the troops were fairly beyond the gates of St. Denis, the leaders placed themselves at the front of the three columns, and with a few inspiring words led them forward. Coligny was on the right, La Rochefoucauld, Genlis, and other leaders on the left, and the column commanded by Condé himself in the center. Condé, with a number of nobles and gentlemen, rode in front of the line. Behind them came the men-at-arms with lances, while those armed only with swords and pistols followed. Coligny, on the right, was most advanced, and commenced the battle by charging furiously down upon the enemy's left. Facing Condé with a great mass of the Catholic infantry, but without a moment's hesitation, the little band of but five hundred horse charged right down upon them. Fortunately for them, it was the Parisians and not the Swiss upon whom their assault fell. The force and impetus of their rush was too much for the Parisians, who broke at the onset, threw away their arms, and fled in a disorderly mob towards the gates of Paris. "'Never mind those cowards!' the prince shouted. "'There is nobler game!' And followed by his troops, he rode at the constable, who, with a thousand horse, had taken his post behind the infantry. Before this body of cavalry could advance to meet the Huguenots, the latter were among them, and a desperate hand-to-hand melee took place. Gradually the Huguenots won their way into the mass, although the old constable, fighting as stoutly as the youngest soldier, was setting a splendid example to his troops. Robert Stuart, a Scotch gentleman in Condé's train, fought his way up to him and demanded his surrender. The constable's reply was a blow with the hilt of the sword which nearly struck Stuart from his horse, knocking out three of his teeth. A moment later the constable was struck by a pistol ball, but whether it was fired by Stuart himself or one of the gentlemen by his side was never known. The constable fell, but the fight still raged. The royalists, recovered from the first shock, were now pressing their adversaries. Condé's horse was shot by a musket ball, and in falling pinned him to the ground so that he was unable to extricate himself. De La Noue, followed by Francois and Philip, who were fighting by his side and other gentlemen, saw his peril and rushing forward drove back Condé's assailants. Two gentlemen, leaping from their horses, extricated the prince from his fallen steed, and, after hard fighting, placed him on a horse before one of them, and the troops, repulsing every attack made on them, fell slowly back to St. Denis. On the right hand, Coligny had more than held his own against the enemy, but on the left, the Huguenots, encountering Marshal de Montmorency, the eldest son of the constable, and suffering heavily from the arquebus and the artillery fire, had been repulsed, and the Catholics here had gained considerable advantages. The flight of a large portion of the infantry, 
and the disorder caused in the cavalry by the charges of Condé and Coligny prevented the marshal from following up his advantage, and as the Huguenots fell back upon Saint-Denis, the royalists retired into Paris, where the wounded constable had already been carried. Victory was claimed by both sides, but belonged to neither. Each party had lost about four hundred men, a matter of much greater consequence to the Huguenots than to the Catholics, the more so as a large proportion of the slain on their side were gentlemen of rank. Upon the other hand, the loss of the constable, who died next day, paralyzed for a time the Catholic forces. A staunch and even bigoted Catholic, and opposed to any terms of toleration being granted to the Huguenots, he was opposed to the ambition of the Guises, and was the head of the royalist party as distinguished from that of Lorraine. Catherine, who was the moving spirit of the court, hesitated to give the power he possessed as constable into hands that might use it against her, and persuaded the king to bestow the supreme command of the army upon his brother, Henry, Duke of Anjou. The divisions in the court caused by the death of the constable, and the question of a successor, prevented any fresh movements of the army, and enabled the Prince of Condé, after being rejoined by D'Andolo's force, to retire unmolested three days after the battle, the advance guard of the royalists having been driven back into Paris by D'Andolo on his return. When, in his disappointment at being absent from the battle, he fell fiercely upon the enemy, and pursued them hotly to the gates, burning several windmills close under the walls. On the evening of the battle, de la Noue had presented his cousin and Philip to the prince, speaking in high terms of the bravery they displayed in the battle, and they received Condé's thanks for the part they had taken in his rescue from the hands of the Catholics. The Count himself had praised them highly, but had gently chided Francois for the rashness he had shown. It is well to be brave, Francois, but that is not enough. A man who is brave without being prudent may with fortune escape as you have done from a battle without serious wounds, but he cannot hope for such fortune many times, and his life would be a very short one. Several times today you were some lengths ahead of me in the Molay, and once or twice I thought you lost, for I was too closely pressed myself to render you assistance. It was the confusion alone that saved you. Your life is a valuable one. You are the head of an old family, and have no right to throw your life away. Nothing could have been more gallant than your behavior, Francois, but you must learn to temper bravery by prudence. Your cousin showed his English blood and breeding. When we charged, he was half a length behind me, and at that distance he remained throughout the fight, except when I was very hotly pressed, when he at once closed up beside me. More than once I glanced round at him, and he was fighting with the coolness of a veteran. It was he who called my attention to Condé's fall, which in the Malay might have passed unnoticed by me until it was too late to save him. He kept his pistols in his holsters throughout the fray, and it was only when they pressed us so hotly as we were carrying off the prince that he used them, and, as I observed, with effect. I doubt if there was a pistol save his, undischarged at that time. They were a reserve that he maintained for the crisis of the fight. Master Philip, I trust you have but small opportunity for winning distinction in this wretched struggle. But were it to last, which heaven forbid, I should say that you would make a name for yourself, as assuredly as will my cousin Francois, if he were to temper his enthusiasm with coolness. The evening before the Huguenots retired from Saint-Denis, the Count sent for Francois and his cousin. As you have heard, he said, we retire tomorrow morning. We have done all, and more than all, that could have been expected from such a force. We have kept Paris shut up for ten weeks, and have maintained our position in face of a force, commanded by the Constable of France, of well-nigh tenfold our strength. We are now going to march east to effect a junction with a force under Duke Cosimir. He is to bring us over six thousand horse, three thousand foot, and four cannon. The march will be toilsome, but the admiral's skill will, I doubt not, 
enable us to elude the force with which the enemy will try to bar our way. The admiral is sending off the Sieur Diable, whom you both know, to the south of France in order that he may explain to our friends there the reason for our movement to the east. For otherwise the news that we have broken up from before Paris may cause great discouragement. I have proposed to him that you should both accompany him. You have frequently ridden under his orders during our expedition to the west, and he knows your qualities. He has gladly consented to receive you as his companions. It will be pleasant for him to have two gentlemen with him. He takes with him his own following of eight men. Six of his band fell in the battle. The admiral is of opinion that this is somewhat too small a force for safety, but if you each take the four men-at-arms who ride behind you, it will double his force. Two of yours fell in the fight, I believe, Francois. I have taken two others from the troops to fill their places. Your men all came out of it, Philip, did they not? Yes, sir. They were all wounded, but none of them seriously, and are all fit to ride. You will understand, Francois, that in separating you from myself, I am doing so for your sakes alone. It will be the Admiral's policy to avoid fighting. Winter is close upon us, and the work will be hard and toilsome. And doubtless, ere we effect a junction with the Germans, very many will succumb to cold and hardship. You are not as yet inured to this work, and I would rather not run the risk of your careers ending from such causes. If I thought there was a prospect of fighting, I should keep you with me. But being as it is, I think it is better you should accompany the Sure Diable. The mission is a dangerous one, and will demand activity, energy, and courage, all of which you possess. But in the south you will have neither cold nor famine to contend with, and far greater opportunities may be of, of gaining credit than you would in an army like this, where, as they have proved to the enemy, every man is brave. Another reason, I may own, is that in this case I consider your youth to be an advantage. We could hardly have sent one gentleman on such a mission alone, and with two of equal rank and age, each with eight followers, Difficulties and dissensions might have arisen. While well, you would both be content to accept the orders of the Sieur Diable without discussion, and to look up to him as the leader of your party. Although they would rather have remained with the army, the lads at once thanked the Count and stated their willingness to accompany the Sieur Diable, whom they both knew and liked, being, like de la Noe, cheerful and of good spirits, not deeming it necessary to maintain at all times a stern and grave aspect, or a ruggedness of manners, as well as sombre garments. De la Noe at once took them across to Diable's tent. My cousin and his kinsmen will gladly ride with you and place themselves under your orders, Diable. I can warmly recommend them to you. Though they are young, I can guarantee that you will find them, if it comes to blows, as useful as most men ten years their senior. And on any mission that you may entrust to them, I think that you can rely upon their discretion. But of that you will judge for yourself when you know somewhat more of them. They will take with them eight men at arms, all of whom will be stout fellows, so that with your own men you can traverse the country without fear of any party you are likely to fall in with. I shall be glad to have your cousin and his kinsman with me, D'Arblay said courteously. Between you and I, de la Noue, I would infinitely rather have two bright young fellows of spirit than one of our tough old warriors, who deem it sinful to smile, and have got a text handy for every occasion. It is not a very bright world for us at present, and I see not the use of making it sadder by always wearing a gloomy countenance. The next morning the party started and rode south. Avoiding the places held by the Catholics, they visited many of the chateaux of Huguenot gentlemen, to whom D'Arblay communicated the instructions he had received from the admiral as to the assemblage of troops and the necessity for raising such a force as would compel the royalists to keep a considerable army in the south, and so lessen the number who would gather to oppose his march eastward. After stopping for a short time in Navarre, and communicating with some of the principal leaders in that little kingdom, they turned eastward. They were now passing through a part of the country where party spirit was extremely bitter, 
and were obliged to use some caution, as they were charged to communicate with men who were secretly well affected to the cause, but who, living within reach of the bigoted parliament of Toulouse, dared not openly avow their faith. Toulouse had, from the time the troubles first began, distinguished itself for the ferocity with which it had persecuted the Huguenots, yielding obedience to the various royal edicts of toleration most reluctantly, and sometimes openly disobeying them. Thus, for many miles round the city, those of the Reformed faith lived in continual dread, conducting their worship with extreme secrecy when some pastor in disguise visited the neighborhood. Many, however, only needed the approach of a Huguenot army to throw away the mask and take up arms, and it was with these that D'Arblay was specially charged to communicate. Great caution was needed in doing this, as the visit of a party of Huguenots would, if denounced, have called down upon them the vengeance of the Parliament, who were animated not only by a hatred of the Huguenots, but by the desire of enriching themselves by the confiscation of the estates and goods of those who they persecuted. The visits, consequently, were generally made after nightfall, the men-at-arms being left a mile or two away. D'Arblay found everywhere a fierce desire to join in the struggle, restrained only by the fear of the consequences to wives and families during absence. Send an army capable of besieging and capturing Toulouse, and there is not one of us who will not rise and give his blood for the cause, putting into the field every man he can raise and spending his last crown. But unless such a force approaches, we dare not move. We know that we are strictly watched, and that on the smallest pretext we and our families will be dragged to prison. Tell the admiral that our hearts and our prayers are with him, and that nothing in the world would please us so much as to be fighting under his banner. But until there is a hope of capturing Toulouse, we dare not move. Such was the answer at every castle, chateau, and farmhouse where they called. Many of the Huguenots contributed not only the money they had in their houses, but their plate and jewels. For money was above all things needed to fulfill the engagements that the Admiral had made with the German mercenaries who were on their march to join them. Sometimes Philip and Francois both accompanied their leader on his visits. Sometimes they went separately, for they were always able to obtain from the leading men the names of neighbors who were favorable to the cause. In the way of money they succeeded beyond their expectations, for as the gentlemen in the district had not, like those where the parties were more equally divided, impoverished themselves by placing the retainers in the field, they were able to contribute comparatively large sums to the cause they had at heart. End of chapter 6 Recorded February 2008